Bible with you, please turn to Matthew chapter 2. Today we're concluding our teaching series and our study of Matthew chapter 1 and 2, a series called What Child Is This? We've been asking this question over the last month here in December, and we've seen thus far as it asks, well, who is this Jesus? What child is this? We've learned that Jesus is Messiah, the promised one, the hope of Israel and of the nations. We've seen, second, that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And we've seen that throughout all of the Old Testament, God was promising, desiring to be with his people, culminating with Jesus' coming. We have seen that Jesus, number three, is that he is king, that he is the ruler over all kingdoms. We've seen on Christmas Eve that Jesus is our joy. As these wise men went and found Jesus, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And so to, today we complete Matthew chapter 2 as we'll see well, who who is this child, will see that Jesus is Son of God. He is the one and only Son of the living God. And so our aim throughout this series has been to truly see Jesus at Christmas. May we get a glimpse of His glory, because as we saw last week, God has created us. He has hardwired us for glory. We desire it. We seek it. We all want it. And only God is glorious, and so when we see Him, and we see more value and more glory in Jesus than anything else, then what happens is remarkable, that the power of sin in our lives is, is broken, and we hunger for Jesus and His righteousness. And then those who don't know Jesus repent and believe and give their lives to Him. And those who do know Him, then they begin to grow spiritually and have more of God's presence in their lives. And so let's, let's be reminded briefly where we left off this week. We, again, looked at a Christmas Eve, ending with chapter 2, verse 12 in Gospel of Matthew. We saw that King Herod had asked these wise men to go find the newborn king and then to come report back to him. And we saw in verse 12 that these wise men ignored the instruction of King Herod, who is the imposter, the fake king, and they go home by another way, and they ignore King Herod. Let's pick up the story with verse 13 and finish chapter 2. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night, and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord has spoken to the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent him killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, 
She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus, the reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth that was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. And so this remarkable text that describes what happened soon after Christ's birth in his, in his very early childhood, it's fitting that we would examine this passage the day after Christmas, for this is what happened soon after that first Christmas. And there are three sections. It's like, it's like scene one, scene two, and scene three that are grouped together. And these three different scenes following after Christ's birth are, are one text. It's one unit. And all three of these share the same main idea. What we're seeing here is all of these texts together are showing how Jesus is a fulfillment of all the Old Testament. So everything that was happening, redemptive history, is pointing to Jesus, and he fulfills all of it. So the primary truth, it's there on the screen, if you're taking notes, the main idea from this text is that as the Son of God, Jesus fulfills God's redemptive plan. And so this theme here is about how God sent his Son, and so a Son was called out of Egypt. And so the theme here is that as the Son of God, Jesus himself fulfills all of God's redemptive plan. Now, as believers, we use the word son of God all the time. It's very common to say Jesus is the son of God. Even children, three-year-olds or younger, could tell you who is Jesus. He's the son of God. And all of us know this. But what's interesting is sometimes we know something and we do believe it, and yet we could not articulate, we, we can't always explain why, or why that's important. What is the significance? What does it mean that Jesus is the Son of God? And why does it matter to us that he is? Now, the Bible says that he is the Son of God. And when you read in the Bible, Old and New Testament, the phrase Son of typically describes something very important that we must not miss. Son of refers to having the properties of, or being characterized by, or exhibiting the marks of, is what the phrase son of means. And so, for example, if you remember two brothers that were Jesus' disciples, James and John, remember them? They were very fiery men, and they wanted to call fire down from heaven to kill those that, that were opposing Jesus. And, and so these two very fiery men were nicknamed Sons of Thunder. Now, Sons of Thunder, were they actually born from thunder in the sky? Well, of course not. That was just a way of describing their character. Their personality was very thunderous. And so Jesus called them Sons of Thunder because that characterized what they were like. And if you read in Ephesians chapter 2, it describes humanity apart from Christ as sons of disobedience. 
Why? Because humanity, people without Jesus, are characterized as disobedient. And so son of defines character. And so when you read in the Bible that Jesus is son of God, that is describing that Jesus' very character is God. That's who he is. He's the son of God. The Father and the Son and also the Spirit are all equal. They're all part of the eternal, holy trinity. He is a second member, and so the Son of God is the second member who is God himself. Now, we know at the first Christmas, we've been looking at this, and we looked at Emmanuel, this eternal Son of God, equal with the Father and the Spirit, became a human, and God came personally to save his people from their sin. But let's clarify, because living in this context, we need to clarify one, one clarification. When we say he's the son of God, we don't mean it the way humans have sons. Now, I know we have children with us this morning, so we will be far more rated G. He is the son of God, but it was not through marriage. It's not as though God the Father took a wife and had a child. Now, there are those who make the accusations, and they say, well, that's what you believe. No, that's misunderstanding what the title, what the name Son of God means. It doesn't mean born from natural union with a man and a woman. It means that the title, who he is, his character is God. He never had a beginning. He will never have an end. He did not begin at conception. Now, Jesus did have a beginning in the sense that the eternal Son of God became a human, and he will be a human for eternity. But as the Son of God, eternal, second member of the Trinity, eternal, has always existed and always will. We must also clarify that the Bible does talk about sons of, and talks about angels. Like if you look in Job chapter 1, verse 6, it says sons of God, and it's talking about angels there. And also, if you look in Exodus 4.22, it talks about Israel as the son of God. And if you look in the New Testament, it's filled throughout that we can become adopted and become sons of God. And so that language is used for more than just for Jesus. But when you, when you look at Jesus, it doesn't say he's a son of God. It never says that. It always says he is the Son of God, the one and only. So when you read in John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he sent his only Son. The word there only, the old KJV had the word begotten. Uh, all that word means is unique, only, one of a kind. And so I know we don't say begotten very much today, but what that word simply means is unique, only. And so God sent his one and only, his unique, one of a kind. There's none like him, none compared to him, son. Just like when God went to Abraham and said, go and sacrifice your one and only son, Isaac. But he had Ishmael, he had another son. But God meant, no, 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 you're one, you're unique son, the son of promise. Same thing with Jesus. He is unique. There is no one else that has a relationship with God the Father that God the Son shares with him because he is eternal. Jesus is divine. And so the title Son of God means 
that Jesus is God. That's what it means. So the title Son of God, what it refers to is equality with God. He has ruling authority as the Son. So God the Father has made him king, ruling authority, a unique relationship, and a member of the eternal trinity. And so it's important that we understand as we look at this text that Jesus, the Son of God, is fully God and yet fully human. And we talked about that earlier in the series with Emmanuel. He, it boggles the mind. Our minds can't fully comprehend it. But by faith we believe that he is fully God and fully human, the only one that could have died on the cross for our sins. Because of that, because he is God, he is infinitely glorious. He is our Savior. He is our hope. He is our Redeemer. He is our heart's desire. Jesus is our God. And we worship Him. We worship our Trinity, the Father and the Son and the Spirit. This is what it means that Jesus is the Son of God. And through the prophets in the Old Testament, God's Spirit was revealing that one day the Messiah would come, that one day His Son would become a human and He would come. And everything in the Old Testament was a shadow. Now when I say a shadow... Think of yourself if you went into an art gallery, like next year we're going to have a Saudi at that really fancy museum, the Louvre, you know, you know, and like people here care about art, I guess. Maybe we'll have more culture in Abu Dhabi at that point. But imagine if you go into a really fancy museum and, and you look at this beautiful painting and, and, and then, but there's light around it, and there's a shadow, and you walk up to the painting, and you're staring at the shadow, and saying, whoa, this painting is incredible. And you're looking at the shadow the whole time, and someone says, you know, if you look up and look at the actual painting, it would be even better than just at the shadow that that painting is casting. Everything in the Old Testament was a shadow, so the light of God's glory is shining on Jesus and you have all the Old Testament that is a shadow of the reality. And the reality is Jesus. He is the final better of everything in the Old Testament, as we'll see here in this text. The final better Adam. The final better Abraham. The final better Moses. The final better Joshua. This is who Jesus is. It's, it was all a shadow. Jesus is the real thing. He's the reality. He's who we worship. So everything that was happening was pointing to, reflecting, and is fulfilled in Jesus. And so Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23, in this one section with this, this triplet, these three amazing scenes, is displaying, it's screaming loudly. It's all about Jesus. Everything in the Old Testament, it was all pointing to, all fulfilled in Jesus. And so let's look at these. I know we have our kids with us, so we won't go nearly as long as an average Friday. But let's look at these together. So Jesus fulfilled the ultimate meaning, number one, of the Exodus. And so the, the first thing we're seeing here is Jesus fulfilled the ultimate meaning of the Exodus in order to rescue us. And so this first section is talking about the Exodus, and it's all about Jesus, that he came specifically because the Exodus was about redemption, about being rescued. And that's what Jesus did. And you see that in the first section in Matthew chapter 2 verses 13 through 15. 
Now, verses 13 and 14 describe how an angel appears to Joseph. And he warns him in a dream and says, Herod wants to kill infant Jesus. And so the family then flees and goes to Egypt to live there. And then verse 15 says, this was to fulfill. And so Jesus went to Egypt as a baby in order to fulfill what the Lord had spoken. So he had to go to Egypt to accomplish the prophecy that was spoken many years earlier. He said this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. And so he is quoting the prophet Hosea, chapter 2, verse 15. Hosea lived around 700 years before Christ was born. And in Hosea's context, he was actually talking about the Exodus. It happened a thousand years plus before even that. And so he was, he was reminding the Israelites what had happened with the Exodus. He was reminding them of how they had gone into slavery. And then God redeemed them. God rescued them. He liberated them from their slavery. And the word Exodus, the word means a going out. It means departure. So like we... We talk about in our church, every July and August, we have an exodus. People leave. And in December, we have a mini exodus, as we're seeing this morning. People depart. They, they go to the airport and they depart. That's what it means to have an exodus. And so the exodus in the Bible refers to the Israelites departing from slavery, leaving their slavery, having freedom. They needed to be rescued. They could not save themselves. And in Exodus 4.22, it says that the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. And if you go back to Exodus 4, the context there is Moses talking to the Pharaoh, saying, let my people go. And Pharaoh saying, no, I will keep them in slavery. And the reason why God wanted the Israelites to leave was because of this right here, this important verse, verse 4, 22 in Exodus, that he wanted his firstborn son, his unique his son, to leave slavery to worship him. And so the purpose of the Exodus was for God to display his glory by liberating his son from slavery. And this is fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is the true son of God who fulfilled the ultimate purpose of the Exodus. Christ has accomplished the final exodus, this new but ultimate exodus, our rescue from our slavery to sin and our slavery to Satan. Jesus has come to liberate us, to give us the ultimate exodus. And so God himself came, and Jesus paid the redemption price, the price to free a slave. And he paid it, and the price was his own blood to free us from our slavery to sin. Jesus came to do what we could not do for ourselves, to remove the chains that would hold us down and keep us suffering with sin. Let me ask you a pretty serious question. Are you this morning suffering with slavery to a sin? And don't answer that question too quickly or lightly because all of us, left to ourselves, 
are enslaved to sin. Which is why God sent Jesus. And only through the power of His Spirit can we be liberated from our slavery to sin and to have true freedom. But the only way to receive that is to repent, to say, I don't want this sin anymore, to turn around, have your complete trust placed in Jesus alone, and His Spirit will come into you. And He will begin, slowly but surely, to give you freedom over that which would hold us down and keep us far from God. And so Jesus Himself, we're seeing in this text, is He is the true Son in verse 15. Out of Egypt, I called my Son. This is all pointing to what Jesus has done. So Jesus went to Egypt, and then he left Egypt to point to what was going to happen 33 years later on the cross. The blessings that we experience today of freedom from slavery. Number two, Jesus fulfilled the ultimate meaning of the exile. And so if you follow the end of history, you have the exodus, and then you have the exile. And so Jesus fulfilled the ultimate purpose of the exile in order to restore us. So he, he has given us an exodus in order for us to be redeemed and he, to be rescued, and he gives us this exile for us to be restored. Verse 16 tells us that King Herod became very angry and the wise men didn't come back. And so he sends soldiers to kill every little boy in Bethlehem. Now, it was a small town, so people estimate, you know, historians, maybe 10 to 30 children were killed. So don't think that it was hundreds or thousands, but even 10 to 30 children in a small town would have been devastating. And I can't begin to imagine. I, I honestly can't what it would have been like to be in Bethlehem on that day. The soldiers came in and killed these little boys that were guilty of no sin. And if you look at this and don't know the context, it's hard to see any hope or anything redemptive in this. Matthew here is quoting from Jeremiah 31.15. He says he's quoting Jeremiah. And the, and the verse there is verse 15, chapter 31. Now Jeremiah lived about 600 years before Jesus was born. And in that day, the kingdom of Judah had been very evil, very disobedient, going after idols, rejecting God, rejecting the prophet's word. And so God sent Babylon, and they destroyed Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple, and they took exiles back to Babylon to live out their days. And it says here, it says in verse 16, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Ramah was a town about five miles or so north of Jerusalem. And so when the Babylonians were, were taking them captives to Babylon, the first town that they would have passed out of Jerusalem is Ramah. And it says, weeping. Now it says Rachel. Rachel of course, was the ancestral mother married to Jacob. And so Jacob was renamed Israel. And so the sons of Israel is through Jacob. And Jacob's wife was Rachel. And so Rachel is here personified as, as the mother of Israel. 
and says that so Israel, the mothers, they're weeping for their children because they're no more, because they've been taken away into exile. This is the context in Jeremiah 31. God allowed his people to experience this pain of exile because of their sin. They had committed spiritual adultery repeatedly. That's the theme of Hosea, also quoted in this text earlier. You see, but when we look at that, let's be honest, we're no better. You and I commit as much adultery spiritually as the Israelites did all those years ago. We're just as guilty as they are. But God is full of compassion, mercy, and grace, and He's slow to anger, and his, He abounds in loving kindness. And so what did He do? He allowed a remnant to come back once the Persians became a power, Babylonians were defeated, the Persians allowed the Israelites to return, the Jews at that point, as they were known, to return to their land. And so God allowed them to be restored to their promised land. And so the exile, what it's pointing to, is God's restoration after great failure. And so the exile, that's, that, that's what it points to, is a God who is willing and desirous and quick. He wants to restore after we're the ones who fail him. And the exile points to that. And Jesus here with the prophet quoting the exile and applying it to Jesus who is then returning from his exile in Egypt. Jesus is fulfilling what you see here is very important. He's, he's pointing to what's happening spiritually, with the, what Jesus is doing physically. It points to the spiritual reality that he would soon die on the cross and that he would then offer restoration to all of us who have failed and those of us uh, that spiritually are exiled and have the opportunity to be restored to God. This is, again, only through our faith. And in the middle of profound sadness, with this death and exile, what you see is joy. God brings joy out of darkness and out of, out of the ashes. God allows us to rise and He brings life out of death. And so God, He is the one that He, he heals the broken. He restores those that are wounded and He lifts up the downcast. He resurrects the dead. And what you're seeing here is Jesus, the Son of God, is the one that allows us to be restored. This is very important. We must not miss this. How are you today? How are you doing today? I'd rather ask you this over coffee one-on-one. It would take a lot longer with all of us. So I'll ask you here in the group. How are you? Are you well? Are you spiritually healthy? Are you living a life where you are seeing yourself have victory over sin? Where you find yourself still enslaved? You feel like you're still in spiritual exile, far from God, with the temple destroyed and feeling like God is gone and God's forgotten you. He is not forgotten. He seeks to restore. He hasn't gone anywhere. 
All he asks is that you would turn to him with complete trust and let his healing spirit come in and change you and conform you to the image of his son. And it's done only through Jesus, who is our hope. Last, what you're seeing here, number three, Jesus fulfilled the ultimate meaning of the rejected Messiah. So the Old Testament talks about a rejected Messiah repeatedly. You see that in Psalms, Isaiah, and Daniel, that the Messiah would be despised and rejected. And so Jesus fulfills his prophecy of the rejected Messiah in order to receive us. So he was rejected so that we can then be received by God. And so through Jesus, we're the ones that can be rescued and restored and then received by God. Verses 19 through 22 in this text is described how an angel appeared to Joseph when they were in Egypt. And he tells him, King Herod is now dead. And so it's now safe to return to Israel. And so the safest place was to go to Galilee, which was a northern area, north of Judea, where it was the quietest, most rural, safest place for Jesus to be, to be in obscurity. And so that's where he goes, to a town called Nazareth, verse 23. And when he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called the Nazarene. Now, if you go to the Old Testament, you're not going to find those words quoted. And so I'll save you some time. It's not in there. You're wondering, well, hold on a second. How is it that the Holy Spirit inspired Matthew to then say that Jesus living in Nazareth is a fulfillment of what was spoken by the prophets? But now you're saying that that's not quoted. Well, that's the key. This right here is not a quote in the Old Testament. But Matthew is very careful to say correctly, this is what was spoken by the prophets, plural, more than one. The reason is that there was a theme that ran throughout the prophets, this theme of a rejected Messiah. And so then when Jesus goes to Nazareth, that is accomplishing the promises that the Messiah would be rejected. And Jesus, being from Nazareth, made him rejected. Because no one cared about Nazareth. If you're an American, Nazareth were hillbillies. They were, they were the backwoods hicks. They were the people that were rural and uneducated and didn't speak properly like, like Americans to the British. The British speak properly. And Americans don't speak English, we speak American, right? And then, like today is Boxing Day. I don't even know what that is. But it's today, and it's celebrated by those that speak proper English. And so it was the same thing with, with Nazareth. It was not proper. It was rural, uneducated, unrespected. That's where Jesus grew up, and it was rejected by the people. Just like the prophet said, he would be despised. Let me read to you John chapter 1, verse 45 and 46. It says, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. He said, We found him. 
All the promises about the Old Testament, it all points to Jesus. He's here. He's a Messiah. He's a king. He's come. He's fulfilling everything that was promised. Verse 46, And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's his first sentence. His first words were, No, the Messiah can't come from Nazareth. Nothing good comes from Nazareth. And Philip said to him, Come and see. You might be surprised. God just might know what he's doing by sending a despised Messiah to a despised location to redeem the despised and lowly of this world. And God's economy, he is so glorious that God the Son humbled himself to become a human named Jesus to endure pain and rejection and suffering. Why? To go and pursue those whom he loves so dearly. And so when you see Jesus crucified, with your eyes of faith, when you see Jesus crucified, what you see is the greatest display of love that has ever existed or ever will exist. He loves us. We're so undeserving and so unworthy, and he loves us. And Jesus was rejected so that he could pay the price, endure our guilt, our shame, so that we could then be received by Father. Humility, hear me, humility is a requirement for salvation. No one walks into God's kingdom. We crawl into God's kingdom with our face to the ground, recognizing how unworthy we are, broken and needy. We, we grovel and we approach God who is holy and we say, forgive me, the sinner. We all crawl in. If you want to walk straight up with your dignity and your pride, then you are not walking into God's kingdom. The only way in is to humble yourself, to repent, to ask God to forgive you, and then he will lift you up and say, stand up, my child. Walk into my kingdom and enjoy blessings and pleasures forevermore. Come, you're my adopted son and daughter, and I love you. And he lifts up the downcast. And he gives us the stunning pleasure and joy of being called his children and of being right now on this earth before we're in heaven until that day comes emissaries, ambassadors, telling others the good news that they too can humble themselves and experience the joy of knowing a king. And so Jesus is gathering a people collectively who recognize their desperate need for God's grace, all the while recognizing the stunning glory of the king. And Jesus is the Son of God. And I praise him that I get to be adopted into that same family. Now, I'm not eternal in the sense, but we all are eternal. We live forever, but we all had a beginning. So we're not sons of God the way Jesus is, but we're adopted. And we call him Father. And we're loved. 
And my heart's desire is that I will know Jesus and enjoy him and have others experience that as well. That he has come. And now we have joy. Do you? Can you pray with me? Father, you are holy. We are not. We are unworthy. We are sinners who deserve nothing more than your wrath and condemnation. And yet your son experienced both your wrath and condemnation on the cross for us. And you offer us forgiveness. And we are humbled. We are thankful. And I pray that you would be at work in the hearts of those in this room who even right now don't know you. That they would turn to you. And for those of us who do know you, I pray that you would give us a greater zeal for you and for your kingdom. May we see you, Jesus, for we need you. Thank you that we have you. And we pray for your kingdom's sake. In the name of Jesus, amen.